Thanks for listening to Reawaken, creating community and meaningful action to shift paradigms in mental health, trauma and addiction, a podcast by The Humane Clinic. Hosted by Matt Ball and Stephanie Mitchell and produced by me, Rory Ritchie, a.k.a. Producer Dan. Incidental music by yours truly and our theme song is Hope by the talented Addo Mull. Everywhere people, in every place, all of the countries and each race need your hope. That's what this world is in need. Hope is in the water that sprouts the seed. Hope is the thing that stops you bleeding. Welcome to Reawaken, creating community and meaningful action to shift paradigms in mental health, trauma and addiction. Hi, welcome back. I'm here with uh, Stephanie and I. Hi, Stephanie. Hi. And uh, producer Dan, or Rory, as is his real name. Hi, Rory. Hello. Um, so uh, producer Dan sort of suggested we talk about why we've got sort of permission, authority, knowledge, skills to talk on on a mental health podcast and commentate on how we perceive things in the field of mental health addiction and trauma. So that's what we're going to do today. Yep. Yeah. So do you want to kick off or do you want me to kick off or where do you want to start? Well, maybe we can bounce around a bit. I was thinking a little bit about this topic and thinking that, um, you know, I've been largely able to stay outside mental health services with my journey. Um, and, uh, I think I was kind of lucky in a couple of ways. I think, um, my, very first therapist I went to when I was having a tough time was someone who really was outside that kind of illness paradigm. Mm. So she was able to sort of be alongside me for a number of years um, while I was struggling and making sense of my experiences. And, you know, I have a pretty significant childhood trauma history. Mm. So, um, so my, you know, my first interest was around, process really really working through that with a therapist but and I've also the other thing that I'm pretty lucky about is I've got a long-standing relationship my husband and I've been together 30 years so I had a lot of support back this was like my early 20s um so I've had that support and he's been you know very steady throughout that time so I'm really lucky I've not really come into contact with having to deal with you know formal medical mental health services but I mean, I have had my, my fair share of psychologists and psychiatrists and various other people that yeah. have, you know, wanted to label me and say things about me when I've been in my most kind of difficult spaces and that has been mm. not very pleasant at times. And I've had my own journey with medications, which has also been equally distressing and trying to come off meds and going back on meds and various other things. So, yeah. yeah. Want to say any more about that or not? At the moment? No, not no. right now. No. Okay. Yeah, and now you're you'd see yourself both as having that journey, and you're a professional. Yeah, well, maybe maybe I can just speak for that for a little while. Mm. Is um, really, I deemed myself to be broken for so long. Mm. It was kind of like this very strong story in my life, Um, and so I started off. I homeschooled my kids for about 15 years and um, before that I sort of just dabbled around in you know, odd jobs here and there and so when I came back into the workforce after homeschooling I wasn't really sure what to do and I had a bit of a, I had a breakdown and then kind of um, thought well peer work seems to be the best place for me because I'm clearly broken and that you guys employ people who are really broken don't you that's what I'd heard and so I went into peer work and um, mm. from peer work um, started to find that people valued me and I was actually kind of offered 
um, or someone had suggested I go into support work and um, that was a big change for me. I wasn't sure that I would have the skills. Yeah. Um, from there, some um, that had I had an opportunity to train as a therapist and again, that was really difficult because I was like, really? Yeah. You think I have some skills? <laughs> I like, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's been a really huge journey for me and some days I still wonder what I'm doing and whether I'm, you know, still too broken to be doing this because, you know, I can have some difficulties sometimes. But um, mm. I think for me in coming to this space, I, what I've learned over the course of many years of being in relationship where people have really valued me and loved me and mm. um, been alongside is that my experiences are kind of part of what's important in me being a therapist. So it's like both. It's kind of like I have this, these experiences over here and I also have this training that, and both of those things are so valuable in my work. Yeah. So that's kind of my reflections as we think about this topic. Yeah. Well, I, I was, two things, two words jumped out at me. And, you know, in, in all of our podcasts, in all of this Reawaken series, we're going to talk about the language and the power and the labels and, and the current way we do mental health addiction, trauma services, and perhaps what we think we could do if we stopped trying to reform broken spaces and, and yeah. actually rewrote what is a useful, functional, skillful space of people being the wonderful, unique beings that they are as, as, as they were meant to be, as, as Pat Deegan once said. But um, the two words that stuck out to me were dabbled and breakdown. Now, you're going to have to stay with my mildly psychotic brain. Oh, I love it. And dabbled... Dabble, you said, and dabble is a sort of word that's used in the field of substance misuse. Someone dabbled oh, in it's drugs. It's going to be a heroin or something. Yeah, mm. and, I, and I know you weren't using it in that context, but I suppose it shows the power of words in this field, is that when we use labels and pick up particular words and attach meaning or narrative to them without authorization in someone's life to do that, without permission, mm. you didn't seed your sovereignty over the use of your experiences that you refer to as dabbled. But I, because I've worked in addiction services and I think about the language, <laughs> I heard you say dabbled and that relates to drugs. So I wonder if you were talking about mental health or whether you've got a secret drug use problem. So I know I'm being a bit silly, but I think this is the nature of the bonkersness of some of the systems we work in. Anyway, that's stretching it. But I think the, the language of breakdown struck me because I remember I heard the word someone had a mental breakdown when I was a kid. Mm. And I hate the phrase mental breakdown. Mm. Yeah. Because, you know, what, what, what does that actually mean? You know, it's such common yeah. language in yeah, our culture, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. I had a mental breakdown. I had an emotional breakdown. I don't know what you mean. I mean, I do know what they mean. I know mm. that what they're saying is they had a big experience. Mm. You had a big, mm. you've had several big experiences had had in your life. And what I heard there was something was changing and that's where yeah. it was change, not, yeah. not, not breaking. So you had a, you had an emotional breakthrough, hmm? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, which was characterized by you and others in our society as a problem or a difficulty. Oh, it was totally characterized by me at the time as a problem and yeah. it improved my brokenness. As opposed to, and as we mm. talked in the, oh. one of the other podcasts about the recent journey I've been on where this, some similar difficulties have been there and it's been an opportunity for growth for me Yeah. because I suppose I'm in a different space. But back then I, I totally, I went into peer work because I was like, well, this kind of proves I can't do that other stuff. 
yeah. the breakdown was in in context of a really really stressful job yeah and i'd been trying to move out of homeschooling into a very sort of like stressful career path i thought that would, would be useful mm. it didn't work out so well and so then it was like well oh this proves that i either have to not work or i can only be a peer worker because i'm broken so yeah and it, there's such so many narratives in that isn't oh, there because you know, i hear that i know that you're not saying peer work is a workforce of broken oh, people oh gosh no that's what but i the believe system yeah and but what I you believe that at the time and i think honestly i think there is a running through of that we mentioned this in another podcast yeah. about treating peer workers more delicately yeah you know, it's all part of that cultural or the acculturation into the person who's been mentally distressed mm. is weaker than the person that mm. hasn't i know which let's let's call that out for the bullshit it is yeah. i mean I quite like the word bullshit by the way but, but that that's what that feels like to me just not true yeah so i just i really value you bringing that in because it gives us an opportunity to name it mm. you know yeah. many professions hide behind their colleges or their start statuses mm -hmm. so that they can look powerful and unbroken you know connected and organized and mm. strong but actually you don't need to scratch much behind the surface of most professional organizations to realize there's quite a lot of messiness in there yes and that's not acknowledged that's not ex acknowledged no. but then on top of that when a peer worker's at work and it's a bit wobbly that person's kind of treated with kid gloves like oh my gosh are you okay what yeah. do you need and very yeah. sort of like coddled and i don't think it helps anyone i think it it means that the peer worker themselves like in that moment in those moments when i was having a difficult time if someone had come to me with that kind of mentality it would have reinforced this belief i had about myself yes what i enjoyed about um, I suppose my journey was that I started to meet with other people who were saying, well, I don't really see... I remember the first time I met you, Matt. Yeah. And we were talking over... We used to have that um, uh, team meeting down at the yeah. cafe. Yeah. The workplace. Oh, was yeah. The Ripple and Swirl. Yes. Christie's Beach. Christie's Beach. Yeah, yeah. And um, <laughs> we're sitting there and we we're talking about, you know, like um, being a consumer of the system and all these yeah. sorts of things. And you said to me, um, well, do you consider yourself still a consumer? And I remember looking at you in absolute horror, like, yeah, like can't you see the package, like the brokenness right in oh. front of you? And and I just think it's so interesting that I'd kind of started to, from that moment, oh, this person, even though you didn't say it out loud, you kind of said to me, oh, like you were surprised that I still considered myself that even though I'm working and successful and, you know, and that yeah. it was really this moment of me kind of going, maybe there's another per, another view of myself that's available to me. And then yeah. I was finding slowly over time that's that built. I had more and more of those people in my life. Yeah, and I, I, it feels really powerful and it brings up a number of things. One is I wasn't being a nurse practitioner no. or a psychotherapist. No. I was talking to another human mm. and I forgot to notice that you were broken. Yes. And I know, I know this is something we talk about a lot when we're often, people are often referred to our clinic or refer themselves or families refer and say, oh, I've got, or someone so-and-so has got a treatment resistant mm. schizophrenia or something. I mean, I don't even know what that means uh, other than the drugs that you've thrown at people haven't been useful mm. um, or something. But, 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 we often remark that these really treatment-resistant, psychotic or schizophrenic experienced people come in and we sometimes find it hard to see the psychosis. It doesn't seem to be mm, present. No, it's not. It's and I think that's about the human relationship, right? You know, like, like if I go looking for psychosis, I guess I could find some 
thoughts that were different to mine or experiences that were different to mine in anyone. Mm. And that day, I remember that day at the Ripple and Swirl Cafe, and just I was, I was, I think I was equally as surprised as you that you thought I should see you being broken, and that you, I thought, I was surprised that you thought I should see you as broken. You know, like, it's, like don't do that to me. Don't ask me to. I mean, it's mad, isn't it? Kind of makes it a bit psychotic. <laughs> we were both, were we both psychotic in that moment? Either both psychotic or both not psychotic. Oh, okay, good. Oh. I don't know. Which do you think? I don't know. Well, there is a diagnosis in the DSM about shared oh. psychotic disorder. So maybe we... Folie deux. Yeah. Yes. That's my f- current favourite, as you yes. know. Yeah. I mean, if you if the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Disorders, I'm sure anyone listening to this probably has heard of it. If you haven't, you've probably been diagnosed by that document. But if you haven't heard of it, it's a document produced by the American Psychiatric Association that lists hundreds of mental disorders, and it's basically a tick chart mm. that if you have these experiences in your life within this construct of an illness, then you've got that illness. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make it true. It's just a group of people's version of what is a mental illness. Mm. There's no science to it. The science of researching it in the 80s found that it wasn't proved to be mm. accurate. But we've carried on anyway. And folie deux is that idea that if you've got a delusional belief or a psychotic mm. belief and I start to believe it and we're kind of close and you, I start to believe it, then I have a shared psychotic yes. disorder. Don't I? You kind of almost caught my psychosis off me. I think I did. I think, actually, in the ripple and swirl, the... Um, What's it called? The dishwasher wasn't hot enough. And I might have used a cup that you previously that's used. Right. And that might have left... No, I'm being silly, obviously. But that's kind of what we're talking about, right? I could catch folie deux from your psychosis. Mm. Anyway, we didn't which, see each other. Which is interesting to me because if it's a biological condition... Well, how do you catch it? Is it airborne? Or is it... Well, <laughs> I know, and there's lots to think about there. I remember that, that day when we were doing a lecture at a hospital in psychiatric facility and me and Sophie were doing a, a lecture at a hospital in South Australia and someone was desperate to tell us afterwards that when a, a person they were working with who they called a patient stopped taking the mood stabiliser they touched the, the person touched the psychotic membrane which I that was about five years ago I still don't know what they're talking about <laughs> but it's, it's a fun term I, I, I'm, mm, I'm quite mm. curious about what they mean well I, and I, it was a good it started a collection that I made up of barefoot psychiatry was a, which was about bears eating feet yes. and other labels for, yes. psychos, for psychiatry and that there was things like um, people meeting the threshold right I kind of like that idea as a threshold of psychosis I don't I don't really that's nonsense isn't it <laughs> Quite, quite strange. Residual Can schizophrenia. I, oh my gosh. So I just got this is lovely sort of. Ima- well, it is. It was used in medical notes I once saw, and there's kind of this idea that there's kind of there's this kind of moisture in the air, which is the residual of schizophrenia. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, what were you going to say, sir? I was going to get back to something you said earlier about. Um, oh, and no, I've forgotten it now. Oh, so annoying. Oh, is that um, part of. I think mental health yeah, problem. It is. Or not. No, like thought, and we're being facetious. Thought blocking, yes, yeah. Yes. Hey, look, I reckon we might take a break and we'll come back and um, we're going to talk a bit more about my journey into being both a professional and a person with a lived experience. And um, hopefully, producer Dan, aka Rory, is going to um, help direct us in that work. Nice. So, um, yeah, we'll see you in a minute. Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks, Rory. Thanks. Cheers.
So welcome back. Welcome back. Thank and, you. And um, yeah. you were going to share a little bit about um, your story and what brought you this far. Is that right? Yeah, we were. Yeah, I was. Yes, I am. I will. So yeah, look, what brought me to here? I mean, um, I suppose I grew up in a what was perceived as all a pretty safe environment, um, and but it was an environment that didn't really meet my needs for mm -hmm. safety. And I think some things happened that we would call trauma. Other things I would say were traumatic that might not be called trauma. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's similar in your life, mm, you know, and yeah. probably in most people's lives that end up with a label of some sort of mental distress mm. or addiction. And, and just to clarify that, we know we hear about childhood abuse or, or domestic violence or, or a range of other specific traumas. But I, I think there's room to say that I've never been able to make sense of the world I live in. And that has made me feel liminal and outside mm. of the norms. And in that space, I can feel quite mad, mm -hmm. become quite distressed, become depressed, become confused. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to go into that too much, but I just wanted to say that trauma for me is much bigger than the, the specific traumas that are often named. Yeah. If that's right. Yeah. And can I say something? Mm. I don't want to interrupt, but, um, mm. you know, I think that's really important when we're looking at people's experiences too, is that... You know, sometimes we can think that something's gone on in the past that is what we is deemed a big T trauma, and there's just as many experiences that have to do with some mm. conflict that I haven't been able to make sense of. You Absolutely. Know? Absolutely. Um, and so I think both are true, and we don't. I don't want to discount either. I don't want to say, you know, trauma is not as important because of some other thing we have to focus on over here in a person's experience. Or, and I also don't want to say trauma is the only thing. Yeah. I think um, it's really important for us to just notice um, whatever the person brings. Yeah, and I and I think it reminds me of, um, you know, families breaking up and whether mm. we think of that as trauma. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not about blaming. It's not about even getting into why a family broke up or didn't break up. But it is about noticing that different members of the family will have different experiences of that. Mm -hmm. And if I can't make sense of that in my world... Mm then it's going to have an impact on me. Mm. And years later, I might still be very disorganized, confused, concerned. Something mm. might trigger it to, yes. to come up. Yes. I know Oryx talks a bit about this in the film Healing Voices. Yeah. And it just feels very powerful for him to name. This was massive, mm. you know, and when there's something in my current loving relationship and my daughter's age brought it up for me, it was really powerful in reminding me of how I found that hard to make yeah. sense of. And, and it took him into a space of experiencing unusual things and yep. being very frightened yep. and upregulated and whatever labels you want to, if you want to call it psychotic, you can. But what I was going to say is that really um, that was an experience that had meaning for him. Yeah. You know, it wasn't a brain a chemical imbalance <laughs> no. so you know and i think this is the stuff that breaks down stigmas actually yeah i don't think saying it's okay to have a diagnosis of depression breaks down stigmas I, it, it's fine to say that if that's what you believe and you really believe that and you've looked into it and you haven't been lied to about chemical imbalances mm -hmm. and all that yeah. nonsense but what i really think is that if we talk about life experiences that we can all relate to as having meaning and being difficult to make meaning from mm then we can understand why people get distressed and end up in so-called mental health addiction environments. And it's all, you know, what does my head in, Matt, is it's sort of like this breakdown between things oh. that 
these people over here have kind of got a bit of anxiety and a little bit of, you know, oh. having a bit of a tough day. And then these people over here are psychotic and they're kind yeah. of in, in a different camp, okay? Yeah, and then yeah. there's people over there who've had, like, legitimate trauma and they have PTSD and have flashbacks and we can help them, you know? Yeah. Um, and then there's people who are borderline and they're just, like, attention-seeking and their behaviours are sort of kind of in a different camp and we have to treat them differently. Yeah. And I suppose what I hear in someone like Oryx's story or your story or my story or Rory's story is that actually... Um, it wasn't, there's no difference between my experience of feeling pretty disoriented, distressed, terrified, confused, yeah. um, than someone who's having an experience of, you know, what would be called psychosis, yeah. you know, um, yeah. to somebody else who's just, just, um, anxious. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I, agree. I, I just think it's so pressure. I just think it's so priceless when we think, okay, what triggered what triggered Oryx's thing? Oh, it was something about when he was a child, his parents got divorced. Yeah. When we when we see someone coming in with psychosis, okay, into our ED, into our emergency department, we don't go, gosh, I wonder what life events brought this person here that they're so frightened this is going on right now for them. Yeah. We go, this is an anomaly. This is bizarre and strange. There's something wrong with this person. Yeah. We can't decipher it. They're clearly not making any sense. Yes. Unless, unless... Their presentation at the emergency department isn't so-called psychotic. It's emotionally highly expressed, yes. as in borderline. Oh, yes. So-called borderline. And then we, we have another set of stories and yeah. go, well, it's not complex PTSD. You know, it's borderline. and um, It's misbehaviour, really. It's misbehaviour. It's mm. quite manipulative and difficult. Um, and that, that's the weirdness of all this, isn't mm. it? Is how mm. we say this is legitimate and yeah. this isn't. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 I think that's one of the things that's given us great learning from one another in our professional roles, mm. probably our personal journeys as well, is that you would have been labelled a set of things and I would have been labelled a different set of things. And some of the traumatic experiences we've had in our lives have been closely related oh, yeah. in context. Mm. And so your expression and experience of that and my expression and experience of that, one has looked in this area of maybe a dissociative type yes, disorder, yeah. one has looked psychotic mm. and they've been so labelled. Mm. And it's, that's very bizarre. Because mm, yeah. I know when I hear you talking about the experiences, it sounds very similar Me to too. the level of the experience Absolutely. that I have. Yes. Yeah. And when at you that talk point, about your experiences, I go, mm. oh, I know those things. Yeah. You just you just actually experience them uh, in, an, in an expressive way differently, mm. maybe. Yes. You know, yeah. but you know the pain, you know the, mm. ex the excruciation or or whatever, yeah. So, look, I went through some of that stuff as a kid, I guess, and then I I became fairly itinerant in a sort of way and um, ended up homeless, and that was another whole journey, I suppose. Um, not for long, I have to say, but long enough that it was stuck with me 20 years later. And, um and then I ended up from there in a psychiatric system via an immigration detention centre, diagnosed with psychosis and depression and uh, by one psychiatrist a schizophrenia diagnosis and various other really unpleasant labels, uh, which I don't really want to say. Um, I had medication and ECT. I remember being on four medications, two antipsychotics, a mood stabiliser, an antidepressant mm. and having ECT. Mm. And I remember my medical notes when I read them afterwards saying, yes, the ECT worked, which I just thought was a bizarre thing to write. 
given there was hospitalisation for drugs and ECT. But we know that ECT was the thing that did it. Yeah. Would you like yeah. to explain what ECT is? Oh, uh, yeah. So electroconvulsive therapy. So if you've ever watched films like One Flew Over the Cookies, Nest, sorry to, to cliche, but um, it was used in that. But essentially we put pads on people's brains and put electricity through their brains in, a, in an attempt to shock people back into a better state of mind. But really important to say... The latest articles say that we are working towards understanding what electric shock therapy might actually do. Mm. So we haven't discovered that yet, and yet and we still do it. And it's not targeted. I think there's no. a lot of misperception in the community that somehow we've improved since the days of you know what happened in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. Um, that somehow it's 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 not as intense. It's not as um, it's more targeted, it's whatever, but yeah. it actually hasn't. And we have no idea. We just put these electrodes on, it goes into the whole brain, it's, it causes all kinds of problems. People have memory loss problems. I know people who have cognitive functioning problems yeah, afterwards. that's um, right. Yeah, so... And there's a lot of denial about that. Yeah. And I think some of that I have... A, I have some compassion for the denial in so much as if I've taken action as a professional that I now think is barbaric mm. and has caused harm, mm. how do I ever come back from that and say, oh my goodness, I am so sorry, yeah. I was wrong to do that. And there are people that do that. You know, I remember Christine Palmer on the Psychosis 365 video wanted to apologise mm. to everyone who she had um, sort of overly supported to take medication and mm. stated that there was evidence to support it. Mm -hmm. And I just really admire her and people that are willing to say... And, you know, I guess that's part of the challenge of having a lived experience and working in the mental health addiction field is, is that, for me, I went through this journey, I came out the other end, I trained as a therapist and then a nurse and then a nurse practitioner, and I now work as a kind of psychotherapist nurse practitioner. But my lived experience has specific roles for me. One is that it fundamentally underpins my practice as a professional, what I learned going through mm. the system. Being in a psychiatric system, taking drugs, being given ECT, living in a community for people that were said to be treatment resistant. Mm -hmm. So eight of us lived in a housing community where we shared conviviality, time together. It was scary at times. It was exciting at times. It was safe at times. It was nurturing at times. It was real life. And the staff there were very much very skillful at taking a back seat mm. and allowing us to get into relationships. And in that space, we didn't talk about risk assessment or what disorders one another had. We stayed in human connection, went to the pub together, you know, um, sat and watched TV together, you know, really regular things that many of us hadn't felt able to do with others. Mm. Um, so I, I learned so much in that space that I bring into my professional work. And then I did all the sort of academic and placement based training. And I, I know you're going to touch on before we close about the different differentiation of roles of lived experience and not, and I'll leave that to you, but I, it really reminds me every day I think about what I learn being in a so-called mad or diagnosable state mm. and from the connections and beautiful and challenging relationships I had, both from my peers at the time, which were where the places I found healing to happen, but also from probably the well-meaning and well-intentioned mm. professionals but some of whom who made really, really poor and dreadful decisions. And I'll just touch on one. Mm. When I was having ECT, I signed consent forms to say that I consented to having electroconvulsive therapy. Yeah. And in my medical notes, it said it worked. 
but six weeks later I tried to end my life. So did ECT work or did it work that it got me out of hospital? And was that the anaesthetic that you have before you have an ECT Mm. or the benzodiazepines I was given or the fact that after ECT I'd have a nurse sit with me for 45 minutes make me a piece of toast with jam on it, give me a cup of tea and talk to me. Mm. So which which aspect of that was helpful for a short period, but ultimately wasn't helpful because mm. I came very close to ending my life. Mm. And I, I think, so there's good meaning in there, but people buy into mythology mm. yeah. and untruths around treatment and disorders. And so I think the greatest learnings I had were from relationship with people living with the experience. So yeah, I know I you want to talk about whole, well, I've, um, There's so many things to talk about in that. I, I love this notion of mythology and and that's a whole topic maybe we can do another podcast on. But um, before I just quick, because I do want to talk about something um, to do with the roles that we kind of end up being pigeonholed into as mm. professionals or lived experience or whatever. But just to, you, you sort of said um, earlier that... Um, you know, people come in to see us and we don't get to see their madness very often. Mm. And I think that's just worth noticing yeah. is that um, when we're in safe relationship, which is what you were saying was happening in that house, mm. Mm. that that you learnt a lot. Yeah. And that sparked me to think about our work and how um, yeah. when people come in and they're in a safe space, their family often goes, he's never like this. Yeah, that's right. And it's like something changes in the room where they're, the person is um, able to calm down and the psychosis is not a, around as much. You know, there's not yeah. so much of that. Whatever that's a, that's whatever a, people call psychosis, you know, whatever that thing is that they're sort of saying is difficult for the person or whatever, well, it seems calmer. Yeah, that's often in those open dialogue spaces, isn't it, oh, where yeah. you have the whole network. The mum, dad, brother, sister, uncle. Auntie, whatever, it's yeah. a couple of therapists or three therapists and then the person is able to tell a coherent story. Very coherent. Of very, what happened. Yes, yeah. And it's very beautiful. And everyone's a bit surprised. Yeah. And it's almost like... Person. Well, and what fa- what's fascinating to me is that often in those spaces there'll be one or two family members who can't quite believe that the difficulties have arisen out of anything legitimate. Yes, The yes. person's telling this very important story and there'll be someone who sort of says, well, it wasn't that bad or it wasn't something because it's very difficult for the family member to hear. And there's one instance I'm thinking of where the gentleman we're working with became really distressed at that point and looked quite psychotic again. Mm. And what are we thinking about? We're thinking about the fact that this is about not feeling safe in relationship and, again, he was invalidated. Yes. And so the the difficulties were were really necessary, again, to keep safe from this person who was invalidated. And, And that's where you get that idea, isn't it? In whatever emotional, extreme, non ordinary state people are in, he, he was providing a message to the community that something wasn't safe. Yeah. And that's like in the film Crazy Wise where Phil Borges talks about um, in, in some traditional indigenous communities, people who go in, who hear voices or see things or are in increased distressing states are actually revered and, and seen mm. as hopeful in the community, mm. you know, because they're telling us about something. And I think we see that even within our Western culture when we can see extreme states emerging, it's particularly in a session where there aren't extreme states and then it emerges like you were describing. Mm. And then we go, oh, oh, yeah, that wasn't safe for him. So that extreme state emerged again. Mm. Well, that's a really beautiful message to us, actually. That's right. Guys, guys, things aren't really safe here. I'm not sure how to say that to you in any other way because I've probably never been heard. Yeah. 
Yes. So, so this is where I go to, mm. is this space of protecting myself mm. and keeping safe. Yeah. Mm, such a great um, yeah. explanation of it, Matt. I think that's really clear. Yeah. And I wonder, do we have time for the other bit or should we leave that to another podcast? Well, I, I wonder if maybe we could do a bit of a podcast about lived experience roles, yeah, nice. about professionals with lived experience, about peer workers, yeah. about the modern system and where it's going with trying to develop peer worker employment yeah. roles more. Do you think that's yeah, right? Yeah, that'd be great. All right. And uh, producer Dan, you got any anything we need to to bring in or reflect on before we finish? No, I just thank you both so much for being so open and honest yeah. with your own stories and sharing as much as you felt safe to share with everyone. I think that was kind of the level of understanding I was hoping for you to yes. share with people who may, may be interested. Great. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Stephanie. Thanks. All right, we'll see you again on Reawaken as we... Uh, work towards creating community and meaningful action to shift paradigms in mental health, trauma and addiction. Bye. Everywhere people, in every place, all of the countries and each race need your hope. That's what this world is in need. Hope is in the water that sprouts the seed Hope is the thing that stops you bleed Hope is the irie in the weed So give hope and live hope And when your kids are hungry Feed them hope If the system bleeds you dry Have hope If the situation makes you cry Have hope Cause now it's time to dry your eyes And hope that that'll keep your dreams alive I hope that you hope Cause everyone's future is resting on your hope Can take the worst thing and turn it around Hope can find the lost that was not to be found Hope can make the loser them start gaining ground Hope can turn your pennies right back into pounds Cause hope can be rebuilt even when it's been killed And if you believe, your hope will be fulfilled But people lie, just to raise your hope Just to make you think that they're helping you cope They're selling you eggs without no yolk they're wearing you down until your will is broke This ain't real hope, they don't feel hope They real hope and deal hope and turn it into false hope Then we give up on this world like it's a sinking boat We let each other drown instead of flinging the rope We're turning the place into some kind of joke But we can't laugh, we can't lose hope In these times while they commit these crimes Because there's nothing else out here keeping us afloat Hope is elusive, a glint in the eye That something is exclusive, that thing they can buy more make excuses, they just sit and ask why Our mistakes are conclusive, hope will just die But I wouldn't lie, singing all lullaby Give hope a try, and hope gets high You'll be bereaved, but you'll also receive Have hope, can be deceived, you've just got to believe And hope, don't let it leave, or ever receive Just hope, and then one day, you're going to succeed You can't live without hope, don't go without hope Don't doubt hope, will keep you warm when you're shivering with cold Young when you're tired and old Hope can make a bright man hearty and bold But hope can find the truth that has never been told Cause some people take hope And some people fake hope But you are the people You people here You're the ones that I feel are sincere You're raising my hope Will hold your hand when you feel insecure Hope will find a way Through any locked door Hope will give you guidance when you're feeling unsure Make a point to the wise Even when there's a floor Disease when there isn't a cure, hope will do it all. And so
so much more and so much more and so much more and so much more hope we do it all and so much more